mind going out there, but I'm actually going to listen to the word today. <laughs> That's great. Thank you very much, Jenny. Well, we have a real treat uh, this morning. Uh, seriously, I'm not going to speak. I am going to shut up in about uh, 90 seconds and, and actually sit at the feet of another teacher. And I know I'm going to learn something I didn't know before. A very good friend of ours, uh, Mark Correa, we've known the Correa family for about 10 years now. I had the great privilege of mentoring Ronan over here. For, was it three years, Ronan? Yep, while he was in senior high school. Uh, he's now studying a double degree in business and ministries at Christian Heritage College. And I'll just give a plug to Christian Heritage College. I actually think the best combination of degrees you can ever do is business and ministry. Because one of the things that is lacking in the church is good business skills. And one of the things that lacks in business is a good appreciation of the spiritual underpinning for everything we do. So I reckon doing a double degree in business and ministry is the very best you can do. And um, I'm just thrilled that Ronan's doing it. I know he's, he's literally killing it. He's, he's getting D's and HD's and everything. And uh, I happen to know he's topped his classes in a few areas because I had a look at his record. <laughs> oh, oh, I was allowed to, because I used to remember, I, I used to be the vice president of academics, so I, I could do that. <laughs> but anyway, look, uh, as I said, we've known the Correa family for a long, long time now. A wonderful, precious family who's sown so much into the body of Christ over a very long period of time now. Uh, Mark and Natasha have been uh, children's pastors for probably seven or eight years. And uh, they looked after uh, newcomers to the church that they were attached to a little while ago. And uh, they're currently on what you might call a sabbatical. And, uh, you know, there's a biblical principle that says every seven years we need to take a sabbatical, sit under a tree with the Word of God open and, and just reflect on where He's taking us and where He's taken us. So, look, can I introduce my very, very good friend, Mark Correa, to you. Mark's going to lead us in an extended communion this morning. Good morning, church. Thank you very much, Dr. Rod. Aren't you guys fortunate to have such amazing pastors? Mm -hmm. can, uh, can we just give Dr. Rod and Janine a hand because they are absolutely amazing. Um, I'm just going to pray before we start. Okay? Father God, we just thank you that we get to sit at your feet. And, and Father, I just pray, Lord, that, that as we delve into communion today, that Father, we will really get your heart, that we will understand exactly why we're meant to celebrate this, Lord, and how we're meant to celebrate at your feet. So we just honor you in Jesus' name. So I'm going to start with a little bit of scripture, and then we'll kind of dive into, you know, um, uh, a few little thoughts that I have on things. So 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I don't know about you guys, but you know, um, often at the time of communion, 
the whole church goes awful quiet. I don't know if you've noticed that. It, it's almost as if we're standing at a, somebody's funeral and the whole place, just the whole atmosphere shifts. But I believe that communion is actually meant to be just like the worship songs we were singing a few minutes ago. That we're actually meant to continue our celebration and not shift the entire mood of the church when we come to this point. And, and I'll tell you why. Because for me, I don't know about you, but have you ever gone through a period of time where you, you kind of show up and do something and you, you're sort of just going through the motion of doing it? Sometimes you forget the significance of it or sometimes you forget why it's really important, but you do it, right? It's kind of like brushing your teeth, right, every day, right? You do it, but sometimes you don't really kind of, you know, oh, why do I do it? And then maybe for a little while you might stop doing it and then when you go back to the dentist, you know what awaits you, right? And we know what the dental bills are like in Australia, so that's not a discussion you want to be having, right? So... So what's important, you know, to me, I realized that I was actually going through the motions with communion. Being a Christian for a long time, you know, you, you can easily forget the significance of what communion is meant to actually mean. And I realized that I was taking communion on a Sunday, but not fully appreciating what it actually meant. Uh, for, you know, from two perspectives, because there's really two perspectives with communion that you need to to sort of get into your spirit. The one is the sacrifice that Jesus made. But the second thing is, you have to understand what that sacrifice, that sacrifice then means for you. What are you actually meant to do with that? And that's often where we get stuck with, with, with communion. Because we kind of treat it like that funeral moment. <clears throat> now Jesus actually wanted us, wanted us to actually regularly partake in communion. That's why he said, do this in remembrance of me. You know, when, when Jesus was doing that, he wasn't having a down moment with his disciples. Right? Jesus was actually celebrating the Passover meal. That was a celebration. Yeah, right? Yeah. And what was the Passover meal actually about? Right? That was remembering how God had delivered them out of Egypt and, and actually, you know, struck the firstborn down. And basically passed over all of them and so that they were not impacted. Yeah. So this wasn't a moment for, for anybody to be sitting there unhappy and, you know, sort of trying to figure this thing through. But what Jesus changed at the Last Supper was that what he was trying to, to, to show them is that there's a new covenant coming. You see, he hadn't died at this point, but he was telling them what his death was actually going to mean. Yeah. So... Instead of just taking the Passover like it was, you see, the Passover had its own ritual. There were animal sacrifices, you know, that were made. The meal was done in a certain way. There's a lot of, you know, um, argument by the biblical scholars about what the process of the Passover actually was. But the reality of the matter is, there would have been a specific order of how that meal was actually done. And it was the host's responsibility to actually walk you through that process. So in this particular case, because Jesus was the host to his disciples, he had to actually take the lead through that process. So when he broke the bread and when he drank the cup and he talked them through this process, he was basically talking them through a brand new process. So it wasn't just a regular meal that they had done 
for you know all of that period of time. This was a changing of the guard. This this was a moment where Jesus said, "We used to do things this way, but now that I'm here and I'm about to go, I need you to start something new." And often we go through the process and we forget the significance of what that actually means. So I want to take you back to the beginning. And Adam and Eve walked in the garden. They had relationship with God. They communed with Him. His, his spirit was with them. They, they actually got to really enjoy something absolutely incredible. But when that failure came, when that mistake came, they actually lost so much more than just being able to have relationship with God. The worst part about what happened is that they had no ability to fix the mistake themselves. You see, once the separation had come, once they had to get out of the garden, there was no going back. And the interesting thing about that failure is, you know, there's... It always gets controversial when you talk about that failure, right? Because the men are blamed the women and the women blame the men, right? But just so we clear where I stand, it's actually both of our faults. And I'll tell you why. So, Adam was given the word by God, which told him what he was meant to do. His job was to actually teach the word to Eve so that she knew exactly what God had said. Unfortunately, Adam didn't do a great job of teaching her the word. So what happened is when Satan came to do the temptation, Eve wasn't exactly 100% sure of what God had said. Why? Because God hadn't said it directly to her. And because Adam didn't make clear exactly what God had said, she could be confused. And how did the snake confuse her? Right? What was the first thing he did? He attacked her identity. Yeah. Then after attacking her identity, what did he do? He attacked the word of God. And because Eve didn't know and understand the word fully, she didn't have any defense. And that is why we fell. Now bear in mind, when she ate the fruit, Adam was standing right next to her. It wasn't like he was on the other side of the garden, tending to some of the animals. He was right there. And he took part in this exactly in the same way as she did. The only issue with Adam was that when God came knocking to say what happened, he didn't want to take responsibility. And that's why he passed it over to Eve. Now, I don't know if you've noticed something incredibly similar in the New Testament, but when Jesus was in the desert and he was being tempted, what did Satan do to him? Exactly the same thing, yeah, right? right? He attacked his identity first and said, if you are the Son of God, and then tempted him with something, right? But the difference between Eve and Jesus is that Jesus knew who he was. Yeah. He knew what his mission was. He knew why he was here. And then when Satan attacked him trying to twist the word, Jesus is the word. So there was no twisting those words because he knew the word. He was the word. And so therefore, he quoted the word accurately. And so what did that mean? It meant Satan had no choice but to go away. Now why did I bring those two things together for communion? Because what I want you to recognize is that 
When Adam failed, he failed all of us. But the only way that we could be restored was by something doing something different to what we had done. And the only way that man could be restored was to live the perfect life. And that a sacrifice could be made that was worthy. <clears throat> you see, we couldn't live the perfect life. There were all these rules that were in place in the Old Testament. And if you read through those, you'll notice how often we failed as people. We just couldn't measure to God's standard. So when Jesus came and Jesus restored, Jesus was coming to restore so much more than just, okay, we're going to have a relationship with God again now. There was so much more that he came to restore. So let's look at what they actually lost when they ate the fruit. Because I think it's important for us to understand that so that we can really put this communion message into context. The first thing they lost is they lost the connection with their source of life. And they therefore experienced death. You have to remember prior to that they were just in existence with God. They lost their intimate fellowship with God because no longer could they walk with God and just see Him and speak to Him whenever they wanted to. They lost their dominion over the earth because remember up to that point, God had given them authority over the earth. But that was destroyed when they ate the fruit. They also lost their freedom and they became slaves in the kingdom of darkness under Satan's control because the earth was handed to Satan. But one of the greatest things they lost, which they could do nothing about, was they lost the glory of their righteousness before yeah. God. And this is why Jesus was so important. You know, my wife and I have been visiting a few churches of late. And it's been really interesting for us to sort of experience a few different churches and see sort of how they do things. And there's a lot of similarities um, you know, between churches, you know, they, they have a worship time, they have a notice period time, you know, they, they'll do a tithing message or, or, you know, they'll preach the word, they'll have communion and, and all of those things. But the staggering thing that I found that's really, really interesting is that when we get to communion, everything changes. It's like you've gone from that moment of connection with God where you, you're right at the throne room, you're at his feet, you're worshiping him. You're singing those amazing words of, of, of how we appreciate what he's done. And then you come to this moment and our focus shifts. And do you know where it goes? I'm glad you asked that question. I'll tell you. <laughs> Instead of focusing on Jesus, we actually start focusing on ourselves. Well, it's true. It's amazing how we... We kind of need to be important and we need to be the center of attention. And we like people, you know, sort of taking note of who we are and what we do. But at this moment, it's actually not about us. But we'll sit here and we'll we'll think about the argument we had with our spouse on the way to church. We'll think about the stuff we messed up this week. We'll, we'll think about that horrible thing we did to somebody earlier in the week. But what did Jesus actually ask us to do? He said, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say, do this in remembrance of you. Why do you think he did that? 
Because you see, when we remember that communion, we are supposed to meditate on and reflect on what Jesus has done and who He was. This is critical because many of us come to communion and forget that. That's why we're having the funeral. Because we're sitting here going, Woe is me. I fall short of the glory of God. I'm unworthy. But what you're forgetting about is what He did. He made you worthy. Wow, that's good. He made you righteous. He restored you 100%. That's why the forgiveness is past, present, and future. But if you're going to focus just on yourself and think about all the things you fall short on, then you will never walk in the freedom you were meant to walk in because you're never going to accept the righteousness that Jesus gave you. And you're going to get stuck on working. And we're going to be like every other religion. If I just get this right, I'll get that. If I just get that right, I'll get that. How would you like to get to the end of your walk and really never ever be sure whether you're going to make it into the kingdom or not? Don't you love it that Jesus took that decision out of our hands? He came and did it because he knew we couldn't. And so we never have to worry about it. All he says is, accept what I did, acknowledge who I am and what I've done, and you get to walk in freedom. But when we become self-absorbed because we need to be the center of attention, our whole focus has shifted away from what we're meant to be doing. Touch your neighbor and say, it's not about you. Touch your neighbor again and say, it's not about me either. I want you guys to remember, okay, when it comes to communion, you need to be focusing on Jesus. He's the one who made the sacrifice. He's the one who basically made the decision to give up heaven, to give up his deity. And the the best part about it is, if you were the last person on earth, he would have still come. Because you couldn't redeem yourself. We need a saviour. But the best part about it is he's done it. So now all we have to do is enjoy that and appreciate what he did. I want to read, Dr. Rod touched on this in the beginning, which is great. So I want to read from Hebrews 10. And I'm going to read verse 1 to 18 because I want to talk to you guys about what the old way looked like and the significance of what Jesus did. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise would they not have stopped being offered, for the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices that are an annual reminder of sins, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, and this is Jesus' words, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, then he said, Here I am, 
I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when the priest has, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Well, that is so good. So my question to you is, if Jesus has put himself forward as the sacrifice and said to God, I am willing. And I think often what happens in this passage is you forget what God is saying. God has actually said, I am not pleased by these sacrifices. He didn't want them. They had to be done. But he didn't want them. So we forget, we sometimes see God as the one with the stick. But actually he's not the one with the stick. He's the, the one with the open hand. Because he sent Jesus when Jesus said, I'll go. But I think probably the critical point here for me was, Jesus said, their sins and lawless act, I will remember no more. So if the Bible teaches us that he forgives our sins as far as from the east is to the west. And if Jesus says, I will remember no more, then why do you choose to remember? Wow, that is so good. Why do we sit here when it comes to communion and punish ourselves for something we've already been forgiven for? All Jesus asked for was a repentant heart. That means if you stuff up and you go to God and you repent, which means to turn from your sin, that doesn't mean you continue in your sin, you turn from it. God is honoring you when you do that. That means you don't get to come here feeling guilty. You are released. How can you walk in restoration with the Father if you're stuck in the old covenant? Why do you want to work? That's what they did, right? There were all these rules, 3,565, well, that's more than that, but the point I'm trying to make is, do you really want to go through those rules again and again and try and earn your way to salvation? We can't earn it. That's the best part about what Jesus did. It doesn't matter what I do. And I'll tell you why, because Jesus modeled it for us and we still don't get it. When Jesus was on the cross, he was hanging next to what? Two sinners, right? What happened to the one that was to his left? Do we remember the story? Good, I like that. Right? So Jesus spoke to them very clearly, right? One said, Oh man, if you're so powerful, save yourself. What did the other one say? I'm so sorry. You do not deserve this. I do. And what did Jesus say to him? You'll be with me in paradise. Right. So if Jesus could say that to somebody who deserved their punishment. 
right? Then what did he do exactly other than die on the cross next to him? He didn't earn his salvation. He didn't jump off the cross magically and turn his life around. He didn't get to even say sorry to the people that he had wronged, did he? But yet, he is in heaven. And one day, we're going to get to meet him. So if Jesus required nothing of that person, why do you believe something's required of you? If you did nothing else but live a repentant life and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Savior, guess where you go? It doesn't matter what you do. Jesus doesn't need you to do anything because he did it. And this is the thing that probably blew my mind the most. And that's why communion is so important because we need to understand what he restored. You see, when Jesus restored us, He didn't just restore us as a person to say, okay, you know, now you're righteous, that's great. What He restored was our ability to meet with the Father. If you look through all the Old Testament, there was always a representative between the people and God. And if you look at some of the significant events that happened, you will always see that somebody, God released His Spirit over somebody. Or he released his spirit over the people. And then something significant happened. So the Holy Spirit wasn't just in operation on the earth all of the time. It was present, but it wasn't inside of the people like it is with us. So what we have to understand now is that because of that restoration, the first thing that we restore to is a a right relationship with the Father. That means we don't need anybody or anything between us and God. We can go into the throne room of the Father and sit on His lap and say, Papa, I'm here. And nobody can sit in between you. Nobody needs to. The second thing He restored, which is absolutely amazing, is your righteousness. Jesus makes you righteous when you commit to Him. When you acknowledge Him with your mouth, You are baptized and you are renewing your mind on a daily basis. You've done it. He's made you righteous. That means as far as the Father is concerned, when He looks down at us, He sees Jesus. Because Jesus has made us co-heirs. And He said, what I do, go do. So if we look at communion... And we're focusing very heavily on ourselves. Then we're missing the point. And we will never walk in the freedom that he created for us. The passage in Corinthians is not about us remembering our sins. It's about us remembering who Jesus Christ is. And what he did for us. How he lived and why he died. Communion is not about stopping and thinking about what you and I have done wrong and how great our sin account is. God never calls you backwards to stare into what you were and what you used to do and to feel horrible about that. That is a moment for us to be reminded about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. That he loved us enough to give up heaven because he wanted to restore us. He wanted to elevate us from being slaves to sin 
to being co-heirs with Him. That means we have access to the Father and all of the promises that Jesus had. That same relationship that He had with the Father, the ability to pray, the ability to heal, the ability to restore, all of it, that's why Jesus came and did it. Jesus didn't come to earth to demonstrate His power and how wonderful He was. Jesus came to demonstrate to us what we're capable of if we are in full submission to Him. That's why He came as a man. That's why He prayed for healing. That's why He cast out demons. That is why He restored people and loved them because Jesus wanted to show us that we could. And what did He say before He left? You will do what? Greater things. Jesus didn't say you'll do average things. Jesus didn't say you'll do minuscule things. He didn't say you might do things. What did Jesus say? You, you will do greater things. So we need to get over ourselves. And we need to learn that if we are restored, we need to live like we are. Because if we keep living like we're not, we will never walk in the fullness of relationship like Jesus did. And it means every Sunday when we come and we have communion and we break this bread, we're actually not understanding what it really means. It means we're going through the motions. We're doing that religious thing, right? Where we show up to church on a Sunday because you know you need to show up to church on a Sunday. And what we're forgetting is, you don't have to wait for Sunday to have communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say, do this in remembrance of me when you're at church. My family and I have had, you know, a brand new revelation of communion. And when we have dinner at night now, we have communion together. And we don't have to break a piece of bread and have some juice, it, it can actually be the food we're eating. Because it's the symbolism behind what's meant. It's the acknowledgement that we are nothing without Him. That what He's done for us is irreplaceable. And the best part about it is, there's nothing that I've done or can do that can earn it. I just have to acknowledge who He is, respect that, and then I can walk in the freedom I have with him. So I wanted to ask Dr. Rod if we could do things a little bit different today with communion. So you'll see communions uh, you know, all folded up over here. So what I'd like you guys to do is come and break bread like the disciples did. But this time when you get up out of your chair, don't walk to the table thinking about yourself and where you fall short. Focus on Jesus and what he did for you and for me. And walk in the freedom he's given you, knowing you are forgiven, knowing you have a purpose, knowing you are loved beyond measure.